Hey, this is Kevin Bossemeyer with UCI Conversations, and my guest today is Earth System Scientist Dr. Melinda Neiswanger. Dr. Neiswanger graduated with her PhD from UCI. During her graduate work, she went to the South Pole twice to collect ice core samples for further study. The focus of her work is on how natural events like wildfires have varied over the past, are varying currently, and how they may change in the future with climate changes. Melinda Neiswanger is also one of the featured UCI people on the side of the big blue transportation buses traversing the campus area, and her moniker is the Ice Oracle. Welcome to the Neiswanger Bossenmeyer Show. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Melinda, how are you today? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Thanks for asking, too. So why don't we just start from the the beginning, Melinda. You grew up in Pennsylvania, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I grew up in a small town called Altoona, Pennsylvania. Most people don't know it, but if you know where Penn State is, it's about 45 minutes away from Penn State in the central part of Pennsylvania. Okay. And were you, as a kid, just interested in science? How did science start happening for you? So I think science really came about for me right around sixth and seventh grade um, when I started to really have, like, science classes in middle school. I remember one of the classes, we had to do a meteorology report for the current or the current weather and also a forecast of what the weather would be in our area. Oh. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting that we could use science to understand the future. And so that's kind of what got me going in the, the meteorology aspect. Gotcha. And then you graduated. Did, did you do your undergrad work in that field? Yes, I did. So I graduated from Texas A&M in 2013 with a degree in meteorology. How did you decide to go to grad school? So that's actually a really interesting question. So I am a first-gen student. And so nobody in my family had gone to college, and I didn't even know what graduate school was until I did a summer program at UC Irvine, and I learned exactly what a grad student was, what the point of going to grad school was. So it wasn't until right around my senior year of college that I decided to go to grad school. And really the reason I did do that is because I got to see exactly what amazing research is going on at UCI. and what it could lead me into in the future. Yeah. Uh, Now, you said you came to UCI for a summer program during your undergrad work? Yeah, that is correct. What what was that all about? So the summer program I was in is called an REU, which stands for Research Experience for Undergrads. It's a National Science Foundation-funded program, and they have these all over the country. And at the time, UC Irvine's Earth System Science Department was hosting them. And they're usually like eight to 12 week long summer programs where they bring students, usually from non-research institutions. I was actually an anomaly there because I came from a research institution. But to get these students immersed in science and research so that hopefully they will come to grad school. So it actually worked out in their favor this time around. Great. And so you came to UCI and what did you study at UCI? So at UCI, I did my PhD in Earth System Science, Um, and Earth System Science is a really unique department in that it studies the Earth as an interdisciplinary system. So we study the oceans, the atmosphere, the land, and more recently, really how the humans are changing the Earth system. And specifically, my research project was more atmospheric chemistry related, trying to understand what was in the atmosphere through time and how that changed, especially when humans came about. Yeah. Can you talk about you know, some of your initial discoveries in, in your research that, that surprised you? 
Yeah, sure. So my main project with my PhD was looking at gases that are released from wildfires. So right now, especially in Australia, we see the devastation that wildfires are causing. And a lot of that is due to climate change. Actually, most of it is due to climate change. And so the question climate scientists have is, well, what are fires going to do in the future? Right. And so in order to understand the future, the best way we can do that is to look into the past. Right. How much did fire change for a given change in global temperature? And so I look at these gases in these ice cores. And so ice cores are unique because they are an archive. They are the only archive of what was in the atmosphere through time. So there's these tiny little air bubbles trapped inside the ice. And you can actually take those air bubbles out and analyze it for the amount of, say, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we've actually done that for the last 800,000 years. But at UCI, we're looking at what we call trace gases. And these trace gases are in really, really tiny amounts in the atmosphere, but they can tell you about things like wildfires. So my project was to reconstruct these two gases. One's called ethane and the other's called acetylene. And I reconstructed their levels in the atmosphere for the last 2,000 years in both the Greenland atmosphere and the Antarctic atmosphere. And what we find is that there is a very strong relationship between the global temperature and how much of these gases exist in the atmosphere, which if they're coming from wildfires, that means that wildfires are strongly controlled by the global temperature. Wow. So... How long have researchers been doing ice core testing? So ice core research really came about in the 1940s and 1950s. The first ice core research paper was in the late 1960s. And it actually started because of military camps in Camp Century, which was in Greenland. And they started digging into the ice and they realized, oh, man, there's bubbles in these these ice samples. I wonder what that means. So it hasn't been going on for that long, but we've actually learned a lot about our atmosphere and global climate through the ice core records. It really is just an amazing opportunity. And it's just, it's mind blowing what is possible to look at. Did you say 800,000 years back? Right. So today we have records of the amount of carbon dioxide, for example, or the amount of methane in the atmosphere for 800,000 years. And right now there are people in Antarctica drilling ice uh, that they think will be millions of years old and that we can understand more about the climate for that time period. Wow. Can you talk about some of the variations that you've discovered specifically? Right. So one of the big variations in the ice core ethane and acetylene record happened about 500 years ago. And that time period actually coincides with what is called the Little Ice Age. So many people hear about this because there are historical records, because there were a lot of people on the Earth around 1500. And what we see is that the ethane and acetylene levels decline really quickly at that time period. And that is likely due to the fact that global temperatures cooled, and so fires weren't as prominent. And so this is interesting because if we know that climate is going to get warmer in the future then we're probably going to see more natural wildfires in the future as well. Yeah. You know, 500 years ago, it's not that long ago. Any um, reason that we would have a little ice age 500 years ago? So the little ice age is actually a really interesting time period, and we don't have exactly the answer to why we have a little ice age. So one of the reasons that has been proposed is that around that time period, 1492, we know Columbus came to the Americas, and brought with him many diseases that 
unfortunately killed huge indigenous populations. And those indigenous populations used fire in their natural environment, right? They used fire to cook with. They also used fire in terms of slash and burn agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so when that population declined by nearly 90% during that time period, a lot of that area that had been burning from humans is now regrowing. Mm -hmm. And so when you have plants regrowing, big trees, those trees can absorb more carbon dioxide. And when you have less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it actually cools the planet slightly. So there's one reason is that maybe this large population decline caused the carbon dioxide to decline and thus caused the little ice age. And then there's other reasons too. It could be volcanic activity, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what could have caused the little ice age period. Mm. If you joined us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations with Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is recent PhD graduate, Dr. Melinda Neiswanger. She's an earth system scientist who studies the environment. Here she starts to talk about her experience going down to Antarctica to do ice core research. Now back to the interview. What was that like to go to Antarctica? Have you gone down there twice? Yeah, so I have been down to Antarctica twice. How long was the duration that you were down there for each of the times? Yeah, so the first time I was in Antarctica, I was at the South Pole, and I was down there for three months consecutively. And then I went down another year for another field season, and I was down there for about one month. Okay. And just on a, on a personal level, what's that like hanging out in Antarctica? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going to Antarctica is really phenomenal. I, there's no word to describe it. The one thing that I realized is just how much noise we have in our environment now, right? You have cars driving by, you have people's cell phones going off all the time. But when you're in Antarctica, you don't have that. So being able to just be still still and hear the world uh, and just the, the, the nothingness that is quiet was actually really, really weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. And so the first time that you went down, were you there for three months or was that the, the one month trip? So the first time I went down, I was there for three months, yes. Oh, okay, so three months. So you're at a, a camp, right? A research camp? Is that how you describe it? Or a, or a settlement? Or right. What? So we were actually at the South Pole. And at South Pole, the U.S. has a yearly maintained station, so the South Pole Station. So our camp, our ice core camp, was a few miles away from the main station. But at night, we did get to sleep inside in warm beds. so it was a little posh (laughs) and and how many people are in the camp so as part of the ice core project there were 10 of us but at south pole station in the summer months it has a capacity for about 150 people okay and have you been working with all these people or are they just going to come together from different organizations and you meet and start working together so of the 10 people three of us Three or four of us were scientists uh, coming either from the University of California, Irvine, or the University of Washington, which were the two universities that were funded by National Science Foundation initially to do the ice core drilling. And then the remaining people were the ice core drillers, the engineers who maintain the drill um, and keep us working and running. Uh, because as scientists, we don't necessarily know all the, the mechanics of yeah. you know ice core drilling. Uh, right. And so we have those people full time and they work the drill. They help us get the ice up. Uh, and then the scientists, our job is to make sure that the ice gets 
properly logged. We need to know what depth that ice came from, because if you don't know how deep it is, you don't know how old the, the, the ice is, and right. then you can't use it for science. Right. And how far away would you be traveling to take the core samples? So the core sample is one continuous core. So you start drilling in the same borehole, uh-huh. and then you just go as deep as you want to go. So mm-hmm. at South Pole, we went to about 1,751 meters depth. It's about, it's, it's like a mile, a mile deep. And how would you get around? Is it snowmobiles? So there's, yeah, there's there's snowmobiles, uh, and then there's other types of vehicles that are, are kind of rigged to handle driving on the ice sheet. You know, we have like 15 passenger vans with big snow tires on them. Mm. Uh, and there's also these things called a piston bully, which kind of have track wheels and they move really slow, but you can get out to where you need to go. But mainly the two methods we used were the snowmobiles with kind of like a sled behind it to hold more people. Mm -hmm. um, And then one of those vans with the wheels. Gotcha. Are there wild animals? At South Pole, there are no wild animals because we're in the middle of the ice sheet. um, And being so far away from the open water with the food resources, there are no wild animals. However, at 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 the coastal areas, there are many, many animals. You have seals and birds and penguins. So that was fun to see. Uh-huh. What was that like the first time you flew in and you're, you know, you're, you're setting your eyes on Antarctica? Was it just like an unbelievable mystery of a place like that you were going to? You must have been very excited. Yeah. So what's really kind of interesting and kind of full circle is when I graduated high school, I had to write like a little blurb about like what I wanted to do with my life. And one of the things I said was go to Antarctica to study the climate, which is really (laughs) weird because I'm like 18 years old and somehow I kind of predicted or just, you know, like I just wanted to do it. So it's amazing that I ended up here, but you know, flying in, we were on the military plane. So when you fly into Antarctica, you usually fly into New Zealand. um, And from New Zealand, you fly the uh, military plane. And so what's really great about that is they let you go up into the cockpit and you can see what they're seeing because there's not many windows on the military plane. Yeah. And so as we're coming in over Antarctica, uh, we were landing in McMurdo Station. Uh, before we started the descent, I got up into the cockpit and I got to see just the whiteness of Antarctica. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just mind-blowing. Yeah, I bet. Uh, how about, yeah. it, it, was there any times of fear? Do you recall ever being afraid down there? So not so much afraid. Mm. Um, I'm not a good traveler to begin with. So most of my fear came from the, you know, two days of travel just to get to South Pole. Mm -hmm. But once I was down there, I didn't feel fear at all. I mean, they have so many protocols in place that if you get hurt or sick or anything like that, there's a doctor on site and, you know, there's people trained and everything like that. So, and they take a lot of precautions Mm. so that no one does get injured to begin with. So Mm. no, no fear. And and there's not like a chance that you'd go for a little walk and get lost? Oh, no, no. If you wanted to, like, kind of wander off, you have to take a Uh walkie-talkie system, and they also have to, like, check out with the chief on station. Uh And so they know you're gone and expect you back at a certain time. Um, But I never really wandered off because it's just flatness, and (laughs) there's not much to see. So (laughs) I just kind of hung out around the station. Gotcha. Will you actually be doing testing of the core samples down there, or do you collect them and then bring them back here to do the research on? Yeah, so it's a good question. So it just depends on the size of the ice coring project. So at South Pole, we were a small project, meaning that we only had 10 people. Um, And so we didn't do any of the analysis in the field. 
Uh, all of the analysis was done back here um, in the United States. However, there are many projects, especially European ice core projects, where they do some of the measurements in the field just because of the the nature of the project mm-hmm. that it needs to be taken right the the sample needs to be taken right away or whatever it may be. But for our project, everything was done back in the lab. And that was at UCI. Yes, that oh, was okay. So, who was your supervising mm-hmm. professor? So my my advisor, my PhD advisor, is Dr. Eric Saltzman, and also in that lab is a research associate, Dr. Murat Aydin. Uh, and both of them have been in the ice core world for 20 years now. Oh, how uh, fragile is that, uh, or you know, how difficult is it to analyze the samples and and keep them? You know, obviously you you want to keep them pure, right? Because <laughs> right. once they're no, not, no, that's a really good question. Yeah. So there are many steps. The first step is being that once we get the ice out of the hole, we got to bring it back to our lab and we got to keep it in one piece because with those air bubbles, especially with the gas measurements, if you break the ice or get fractures in the ice, modern air exchanges with those air bubbles. Right. And so then you're, you don't have the ancient sample anymore. Um, and so we have many protocols that we use. So once we get the samples back um, to the United States, we actually have to sample a subsection of the sample because we're talking about cylinders of ice that weigh 40 pounds. We only take a small bit of that ice to do our measurements at UCI on. Uh And so we bring those back and everything, you know, we bubble wrap all of the ice, all of the ice is shipped in boxes that are insulated with basically industrial strength ice packs. So we keep the ice super cold and super protected um, on its journey. And then once we get it into the lab, then we have to clean the ice. So mainly the way we clean the ice is we use a scalpel blade. Uh, we have a walk-in freezer where you gear up, you put on all your cold weather gear, and you walk into the minus 25 degree C freezer, wow. and you clean the ice. Mm. And so for my project, I actually cleaned the ice twice because I wanted to make sure it was super clean uh, because of these measurements are incredibly hard to make, and any little bit of dirt or contamination will ruin the sample, unfortunately. Right. So from your first trip, you were down there for three months. What did you discover? Oh, in the first three months? Um, well, one really fun thing that happened is as we're drilling the ice core, we bring up about two meters of ice at a time, so about six feet of ice at a time. Mm-hmm. And as I'm processing the ice, I see this black layer in the ice. Mm. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I look closer, and it's actually a volcanic ash layer. Mm. And so one of the, the measurements that we can make on ice cores is looking at volcanic layers. And so you can actually date the ice core by knowing that ash layer is from, say, 1292 A.D. Uh, but, yeah, so I got to see that in person um, and see that ash layer. Doesn't that blow your mind? <laughs> it's really remarkable. I mean, because when you imagine, so the, that ash layer was from about 3,300 years ago. <laughs> um, and so if you were standing at Antarctica at the South Pole, it literally must have been raining ash on you in order for that layer to have been preserved Right. Nice. So yeah. if if you were there at that period, it would have been all black, is right? Because I mean, if yeah, it's... I mean, so the layer was only a, like a millimeter thick, uh-huh. but that's after it was compressed, right? So it right. was you know several hundred meters down. So yeah, you're looking at maybe five millimeters or so, maybe when it was not compressed at the surface. Yeah. So yeah, it would have literally been black stuff falling from the sky. And what was the uh, event? They think it was a volcanic eruption, or mm-hmm. so. What's really neat is people can 
I call it DNA fingerprinting the volcanic layer. Wow. Uh, but basically they look at the different minerals in that ash yeah. and every volcano has its mineral composition. And so you can actually figure out what volcano that ash layer came from. And I think for that ash layer, it came from the South Sandwich Islands, huh. which is kind of an archipelago of islands uh, just a little outside of Antarctica. Wow. So, yeah. so not as because I was thinking I I had done a little background uh, studying up on you, and I had heard a little bit of this story. So, and I was thinking, oh, well, it was the not. Uh, I thought it was a worldwide event. So, not. I mean, yes, it was significant, but one of the, the reasons why was because the volcano was not that far away, relatively. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, whenever we're doing these studies, it does matter where the event happened, uh-huh. right? Because everything that goes up in the atmosphere eventually comes down, Mm -hmm. but the time at which it comes down depends on where you are from that event, right? Mm -hmm. So for Antarctica, the reason we like to do research there is it is so pure and pristine. Mm -hmm. So usually a lot of things don't make it down to Antarctica. But in that case, because the volcanic eruption was so close to Antarctica, it did make it Mm -hmm. uh, to the ice sheet. It seems like I hear about uh, core sample testing and research more in Antarctica and the South Pole than the North Pole. Is is that true or, oh, no, not really. They, they're doing it both equally. So we do a lot of research in Antarctica because of the climate in Antarctica. Mm. So 100,000, 200,000 years ago, the climate was a lot different. Mm. Um, and so Greenland actually doesn't have, didn't have much ice back then. Mm. And so the records, the length of the records you can get from Antarctica are significantly longer mm. than the records you can get from Greenland. Mm. That doesn't mean we don't do it. We have many mm. records from Greenland. Mm-hmm. Um, but because if you want to look for, say, the million-year-old ice, you're not going to look in Greenland because a million years ago there wasn't ice there. Mm. Interesting. So yeah. was there, you're talking about Greenland like, so the North Pole didn't have ice or is, you know, why are you, do you mention Greenland as opposed to the North Pole? So the reason I mentioned Greenland is because when we do ice core drilling, we're usually drilling into an ice sheet and an ice sheet is mass on land. Mm. So the North Pole itself is actually frozen seawater or sea ice. Right. And so year after year during the summer, that sea ice melts and expands again in the winter. Mm. And so when we're looking for ice cores, you really have to get year after year accumulation. Mm. There are people that do measure cores in sea ice, but sea ice is only a few meters thick. And so we wouldn't have a very long record and it wouldn't the air bubbles like the ice cores from Greenland or Antarctica would. And then you went back another time for a month. Was there anything different about the second trip than the first trip? No, nothing different. So with the ice core drilling, you could only really be there in the summer season, Mm -hmm. which is a very short season, just about three and a half, four months. And our project takes longer than that. So it was a three-year-long project that only happened in the summer months. So you go down for three or four months, come back for almost a year, and then you go back. So it's a long process. Mm -hmm. And you went back to the same location the second time? Yeah, that's correct. And you mentioned that on the coast there's wildlife. Did you get to the coast sometimes, or did you just fly over it? Or, or Yeah, what? so actually to get into South Pole, you have to stop in McMurdo Station, which is on the coast. Ah. And so we have like a little bit of a layover there, depending ah. on the weather situation at South Pole. So if you can't fly into South Pole, then you get a little longer layover in McMurdo. Yes, I got to see a penguin. I don't, <laughs> not just one, <laughs> one penguin, lots of seals, and there's many birds there as well. Gotcha. 
You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and you are listening to my conversations with UCI Earth System Scientist, Dr. Melinda Nicewanger. She now talks about graduating and life after UCI. When did you receive your PhD from UCI? And I actually received my PhD on paper June 2019, so not that long ago. Oh, okay. Did you walk? Yeah. Did you walk? I did walk. Oh, just like mm-hmm. nine, eight months ago, something like that. So, Yeah, I did. And I picked up my diploma back in uh, around Christmas. <laughs> so uh, You mean just a couple officially. weeks? A couple weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So you yeah. were... It so takes a while. You were in Orange County? Yeah. So my family, my in-laws live in Irvine. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, do you have any plans to come back to campus anytime well, I am going to be in Irvine in March. I was invited to give a talk at an ocean sciences conference, oh. um, so I'll probably be there in the in late March. Is that conference going to be here at UCI? No, it's it's at Dana Point. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Uh, it's like a a girls in STEM conference. Oh, great, fantastic. Yeah. So, once you completed your work here at UCI, then where'd you go? Yeah. So I. Finished uh, at UCI, I moved in early October to Boulder, Colorado, and I now have a postdoc, which is a postdoctoral fellowship at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, where I'm looking at what's in our atmosphere today. Mm. So what do you, you know, can you give us uh, some of your expertise in this area? Like, what, what are you seeing? Well, with the ice core, so I I have a a unique perspective because I've done so much work with ice cores, which give us a sense of what was the atmosphere like before humans really came around. And then I also see today's atmosphere and with humans really involved. And it's unprecedented. The amount of stuff we put in the atmosphere, we've never seen before in the natural world. And so when people ask, really us? Yes, there's absolutely no doubt that we are changing the climate system. Mm. Wow. Are you alarmed? Yeah. I I don't necessarily like to use the word alarmed because it sounds like, you know, we're trying to ring the alarm bells and, like, get all this attention. But I think it is something we need to be concerned about. I mean, we're seeing right now in Australia these fires that are burning millions of acres and you know millions of animals are lost and it's going to take decades for that area to regrow and be what it used to be Mm. and in that time who knows what's going to happen there again and it's not just australia it's also like our water resources and everything is going to be really really sensitive to what's Mm. going to happen with the climate Um, and so all i can do i'm a scientist i'm not a politician. I'm not a social scientist. I'm, I'm a, a physical scientist. So all I can do is tell people what we see in the data. Mm-hmm. And that is that this is real. It's happening. And it has been happening. It's not something that just started last year. This has been going on for hundreds of years now. Mm-hmm. And how long will you be? It's in Boulder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Noah is there's there's the Boulder location. There's also one in Maryland. And I'm supposed to be here probably for about three years. My fellowship's a three-year-long fellowship, uh, but I hope that I can stay longer. Gotcha. And do you think you'll teach someday, or, you know, what are you open to anything, or, you know, what, what, how do you think things are going to develop? Any idea? So 
I absolutely love teaching and I love engaging with people. So I do hope that whatever career path opens up for me, that it does involve some aspect of teaching mm-hmm. public speaking. I just, especially now, um, it's really important for scientists to be able to get out there and let people know what's happening. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm open to anything really. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, when you're looking at, uh, so right now you're not doing work on uh, ice core samples. Is is that correct, or or you are? Yeah, no more ice core samples. I uh, mean, I still have research from the ice core work that we did, uh-huh. but my work now is looking at modern air samples uh-huh. um, around the world. Uh-huh. And so, are you guys, are you involved with uh, selecting those samples, or there's teams of people who then send it to you? How does that work? Right. So the the NOAA system has been in place for many years now, like over 20 years, and they have a select site. In my group, we have 14, 15 different sites around the world where samples are measured weekly, bi-monthly, monthly, whatever it may be, based on uh, the personnel that we have for those locations. And those samples come back to the Boulder labs, and they're analyzed here in Boulder. So we have records of many, many different gases for the last 20, 30, 40 years. You know, in terms of your everyday work, what's a typical day look like? Is it at the computer and running scenarios, or what What does it look like? Are you actually in a lab? So I am not in a lab right now, uh-huh. although the lab where we get our data from is just right down the hallway from me, and uh-huh. I have been in there, and I have learned the machine and how we collect the data. Uh, but for me right now, my main goal is looking at we have like I said, about 25 or 30 years worth of records of many different gases. And the gases in my group that we're looking at are ozone-depleting gases. And these gases can interact in our stratosphere to destroy the ozone layer. And the ozone is important for us because it protects us from the ultraviolet radiation, which can cause skin cancer. Um, And these gases are mainly emitted by natural things, such as wildfires. Mm -hmm. So in the future, if we have more wildfires, which we think we will, then we're going to have more of these ozone-depleting gases, which can then potentially weaken our ozone layer, similar to what happened with the CFCs that happened in the 1980s and such. And that was the professor from UCI that discovered that and raised the alarm, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherry Rowland, right. where Rowland Hall is named after. Yeah, so right. CFCs, you know, they're really important. Uh, they're still in our atmosphere because they live for a long time. When you emit a molecule of CFC-11, you know, it's in our atmosphere for many, many, many years. So we're still seeing an ozone hole in Antarctica, and it'll take quite a long time to recover. They're expecting it to recover to the pre-1980 level sometime after 2060, I think. Okay. But you're looking at it from a div- another angle. There are other chemicals that are attacking the ozone layer. Is that what you said? Yeah, so the gases I'm looking at are called, one of them is methyl bromide, and the other is methyl chloride. And both of these gases are mainly emitted into the atmosphere today through natural processes, such as the wildfires, as I mentioned, also the ocean, the little phytoplankton in the ocean that give us a lot of our oxygen on Earth, also can produce other gases during their their metabolic processes. And that gas, for example, methyl bromide, has a lot of variability through time that we see. And the question we're trying to ask is how much of that variability is due to fires 
how much is due to the ocean, and what do we know about those different regions and how they're going to change in the future. Because if they're going to change, like the wildfires in Australia, releasing a lot of methyl bromide right now, and that could impact the amount of ozone we have in our stratosphere through time. Hmm. And Australia being closer to uh, Antarctica, you would anticipate that there's going to be a strata level of ash going down there? Is that correct? So it just depends. It takes about two to three weeks for air to travel all the way around a latitude band. Um, And then it takes even longer for that air to move between latitude bands, say from where Australia is into the Antarctic area. Mm. Um, And during that time, a lot of that ash and that pollution and all those chemicals are going to, they're going to react in the atmosphere to, you know, all of the chemistry that happens and then also get diluted a bit as well. So we are measuring, NOAA is measuring our regular samples at many sites, one site in Australia and two sites in Antarctica right now. And I haven't seen any of the recent data, but I imagine we're going to see peaks in a lot of the gases we look at because of these fires. On a different level, um, in terms of, you know, your career, and I know going through a Ph.D. program is not easy. Did you have any uh, hurdles that you like, yeah, there was this point or adversity that you, you know, that you felt like you had to overcome? Anything come to mind? Yeah, there's a few things. So the first being, you know, as I mentioned, a first-generation student, the support system was, my family is amazing. I love them all very much. But it's not the same when people don't have similar experiences because they may not necessarily know how to give you emotional support or whatever it may be. So that was hard because I was always explaining to people why I was still in school and exactly like what that meant. One of the other things that I faced a lot, which is not uncommon, unfortunately, is being a female in science. The ice core world is not very diverse. And so sometimes I struggled with um, just feeling like I didn't belong. No one ever made me feel like I didn't belong. But sometimes you just look around the room and you realize you're one of only a few people that look like you. Uh huh. Interesting. In terms of now that you're, you know, you've graduated, do you have any advice for your younger self? Huh. Let's see. Advice for my younger self would be to be easier on myself, Hmm. that things don't have to be perfect. And also one thing which applies for everybody is to take better notes. I would do experiments and I would look back and be like, I don't remember what I did there. So taking better notes and just being easier on myself uh, because it all works out in the end in whatever way it's meant to work out. Uh Very good. How about in terms of your career? Can you describe a moment that was just an aha moment? Like, my gosh, I can't believe what we discovered here, or maybe it was just a self-discovery for yourself. Anything come to mind in that area? Um, I think one of the really amazing things that I kind of awed is just really getting to see science in the whole realm of it, right? So I started my PhD. I got to go to Antarctica to drill an ice core sample, you know, the ice cores, bring them back to the lab, analyze them, get the data. And now I've written papers on it. 
and I'm making science and like learning about our climate system from what I did. And like one of the really fun things that I did before I left UCI was I measured these gases over the last 50 some thousand years. So my thesis work was really focused on just the last 2000 years. And so I got to spend some extra time collecting this data and I can see how the atmosphere and our climate system evolved coming out of the last glacial period. And I can see just like how fires changed. And I think that is just really cool. Mm, mm, mm. When was the last, you, you talked about the little ice age. Uh, what, when was the last ice age? Yeah. So the last ice age, um, it ended about 20,000 years ago. And that's when we started to warm up slowly. So the last ice age, the peak of it, what we call the last glacial maximum, was around 30,000 to 25,000 years ago. And have you done any analysis of Yosemite? It's one of my favorite places in the world, and I'm just always just in awe of when I walk around and look at, at those granite walls. Yeah, no, we have not done any analysis of Yosemite because, I mean, about 20,000 years ago, there were glaciers in Yosemite, right? That's what formed the amazing environment that is Yosemite. I wish we have records from there, like ice core records, but unfortunately all the ice has melted right. away. <laughs> right, 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 right. And I see some of your side interests are hiking, which you're in an incredible area for hiking. I, you're just yeah. in heaven there. I know. Actually, today at lunch, I took a four-mile hike right up. Uh, behind our NOAA building, yeah. there's all this land. We have the flat irons right behind us, and yeah. I took a four-mile hike. Oh, <laughs> I'm jealous. I know that some of those hikes in there, it's just incredible. Um, yeah, it's amazingly beautiful. Cool. And I also see that you like high-altitude bread making and baking. Is, 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 was that just for a laugh, or is that real? No, it's real. So <laughs> when you use well, baking in general is yeah. a chemistry process. Yeah. Right? The amount of moisture, the amount of uh, levying agents. And so when you're at high elevation here where we're living, we're at about 5,400 feet elevation. You have to adjust all of your recipes yeah. for the elevation. Yeah. Well, you know, what is the, prof you know, Professor, Doctor, what is the reason for that? What, what, you know, what's going on there? Right. So the first thing is, is that as you move up in the atmosphere, the pressure and the density of the air changes, right? So, you know, when you go in an airplane, your ears always pop. That's because as you move up in the atmosphere, the pressure lowers, and so does the density of the molecules of air. And so when you're higher up in elevation, say, for example, when you're making bread, bread, the reason we have bread is because little yeast, you know, they produce air bubbles, carbon dioxide. And so when you have less pressure on the dough as it's rising, those air bubbles can get really, really, really big. Oh, okay. And so then what happens is when you go to bake your dough, if you put too much yeast in the dough, then all of those air bubbles get really big and then collapse, and then your bread collapse. becomes really flat. Collapse. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Interesting, yeah. interesting. And so, then it's also really dry here, too, uh -huh. uh, because you're higher up in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Like I said, density is lower, and you also have less water vapor, and so you have to adjust your recipes as well as your your skin regimen. You have to use more chapstick and lotion because it's just drier here. Mm, interesting. So do you consider yourself a chemist? Um, I use that term loosely because I was not trained as a chemist. Uh -huh. um, like I said, my background is in meteorology. Uh -huh. I consider myself more of an earth scientist. I do have chemistry knowledge, but I would never want 
somebody to ask me questions about like hardcore organic chemistry. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. And when you say meteorology, is that that's not astronomy? That is that basically just Earth's atmosphere? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many programs, they either call it meteorology or atmospheric science, but at, at Texas A&M, meteorology, you take all of the classes that would allow you to forecast weather and be a, a modeler in terms of understanding the weather. Um, yeah. So I would imagine you study hurricanes. I did study hurricanes a lot. I, one of my uh, senior projects was on, funny enough, trying to understand ancient hurricanes and hurricanes of the past climate. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And can you just shed a little light on what you discovered? Well, so the way we look at past climate are what we call proxy records, which are things that kind of represent or simulate the past climate. Um, and so with the hurricanes, you can look at like isotopes and sediment cores and things like that, because as the air and the moisture is being moved around a lot, which happens in hurricanes, it kind of shifts where rain is falling. And so you can kind of get records of these proxies in different places and kind of get a sense of how many hurricanes there were through time. Mm -hmm. But that paper was also like 10 years ago now, so I can't really tell you all the details. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, while uh, I'm just you know, looking at a little bit of my you know, background materials here, Nicewanger is a very interesting last name. Can you shed a little light on that? Yeah, so I actually did one of those Ancestry DNA tests. Okay. And my whole life, my family said, you're German, you're German. Well, yeah. when I first did it, it came back as, European, but like British European. Okay. Just a few weeks ago, they updated my DNA profile, and now it says I'm German. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're in a three-year, this is a three-year project at NOAA? Yes, that's correct. Gotcha. Will it be the same, or will it uh, evolve as you're doing the work? Yeah, it's definitely going to evolve. Right now, I'm doing a lot of just interpretations of the data, looking at the data and trying to get a sense of, you know, what was going on. And then eventually I want to move into more of the, the modeling aspect, like trying to understand exactly how much fire was needed in order to get the levels we see in the atmosphere and that kind of stuff. What do you find most challenging about your work now? Well, one of the things that's challenging is that there's a lot of data. And, you know, coming from an ice core world where, you know, I collected at most two samples a day. Now I'm in a world where we have thousands upon thousands of data points. I'm um, in trying to keep sense of those and keep them organized. So for me, that's a new uh, learning experience, learning how to be a data analyst. Mm. And how's that going? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, I've only been at it for a few months, but it's going well. There's so many people at NOAA that are incredibly talented, yeah. um, and that environment is conducive to learning all types of new things. So it's going well, and my new advisor at NOAA, Dr. Steve Monska, is phenomenal, and uh, so he's very supportive and helpful when I have, have problems. Fantastic. How many people are actually staffed that NOAA facility there in Boulder? The NOAA facility here in Boulder is actually really unique because it has a cooperative institute as part of it. So CU Boulder, the university, is just across the street. Uh -huh. So there's people that are employed uh, as part of this joint institute between NOAA and CU. So 
So exactly NOAA employees, I can't give you a number, but in our building, there's about 800 people. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, Melinda, I think I've run out of questions, but I've loved every minute of it. Your enthusiasm and and passion is contagious. We wish you you. all the best. We uh, look forward to hearing more about what you're doing in the future. It sounds really interesting and important. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to ask me about stuff. Uh, I, I enjoy letting people know what's going on because so many people, especially at UCI when I was a TA, they had no idea what an ice core was. And so I made sure that every one of my students at least had the chance to hold an ice core sample. Yeah. Uh, and I think that helps them realize just how fragile our earth is. Do you think that you'll be going back to Antarctica in the future? Or, or you know, who, who knows? Is it is it that? Who knows? I would absolutely love to. My next goal actually is to go to Greenland because I want to go to Greenland since I've already been to Antarctica twice, mm-hmm. you know, who needs yeah. to go a third time? <laughs> <laughs> Well, fantastic. Thank you very much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much.